This is Immerse, a podcast and book. Composer, sound artist Charlie Morrow explores immersion in public events, broadcasts, music, installations, and environmental systems. Immerse compares timelines in conversations with more than 40 collaborators. Immerse, 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 immerse. This is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. Sound, light, space. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking with David Toop, English musician, author, and professor of audio culture and improvisation. So what's, what's your project here, this immersion project? Uh, as an investigator of shamanistic things in my early years and then explorer in 3D immersive sound experiences, and, um, I've become very interested in the whole concept of immersion. What does it mean? So um, I've been interviewing colleagues uh, and asking two questions. One is, what is your relationship, part of your practice or part of your current view on immersion? And then the other question is, how did you get there? Like, what was the first exciting immersive experience you had, like singing and blowing bubbles when you were a baby or something, you know? I've been building uh, planetarium shows for the last 10 years, and before that, I was uh, making puppet shows for kids, and before that, I was writing books, you know? I mean, the book is based on a series of descriptive essays uh, or a spoken essay and timelines, and I will compare these on a chart because uh, you know, everybody I'm talking to is has lived through these periods, and I'm interested in sort of charting what we've done over time because um, I find it a fascinating discussion. I mean, technically, you know, we start out biologically immersed in our moms, so reenacting immersion. So there's a, a kind of interesting cyclic quality to it as envelopes that we build as a civilization or individuals, explorers. So that's my take on it. I've appreciated the depth of your experience both the way you describe sitting in an audience or the weather or whatever moves you, you seem to be very much in touch with the world around you. And so I wanted to ask you to talk about your sense of immersion and your history with immersion. Well, to take the, the second question first, the thing I remember, the first experience I remember of listening and feeling in some way immersed in sound was when I was a young child, my mother used to take me to my grandparents' house. We used to walk along the railway tracks from the main part of the town to the suburban part where we lived. And of course, it was not long after the end of the Second World War. So there were prefabricated houses built along that walk for people who'd been bombed out of their homes because there was a munitions factory nearby. So, you know, it was a target for German bombers. And they, they fascinated me, these, these homes. You know, there were single-story temporary buildings, and there was something really interesting to me about them. But then the main part of this experience came when we walked through an alleyway, and I guess it was two parallel 
walls. I don't, I don't know what material, maybe concrete. And I suddenly noticed the sound of our footsteps change dramatically. So if I'm remembering it correctly, it suddenly had this metallic reverberant quality. And of course, now I know that that was a phenomenon called flutter echo. So I'm now going to clap my hand uh, and you will be able to hear the flutter echo. You know, the two parallel walls and the, the sounds of the footsteps bouncing back and forth very rapidly. But of course, I didn't know that then. I was five years old or something, but I noticed it. And that's, that's the important thing. I noticed it. And I think that experience was quite formative because it was suddenly becoming consciously aware of the auditory world and the fact that sound could change, could be transformed according to environmental conditions. And the way in which it changed could suddenly immerse you. So that memory was dormant for many years. And like some of these memories, it suddenly came back to life again. I don't know what you unlock in yourself, but you unlock something which is, is a kind of a key to, I'm not saying all sub subsequent auditory experiences, but it, it's kind of a, a key to awareness. And that awareness, I think, of sound and its behavior within environmental conditions or within spatiality was probably really important to me. Because years later, when I started to think about these things, not when I first played music, but because I was playing music in bands and trying to do what we all try and do in bands, which is work with other people and make something respectable. But when I got past that phase and started to ask questions rather, what am I doing? What is music for? What is sound doing? What What is listening all about? You know, these big key questions that launch you into another rather precarious life of exploring this, this phenomenon. One of the questions was, what is music doing? Well, music is sound in space. It's the behavior and sound in, of sound in space. And if you find that interesting, and that takes you beyond the conventions of playing in a blues band, which is what I was doing, <laughs> or whatever it is your musical genre or your musical taste is. And, and it takes you into a much more exploratory area. And that exploratory area was, yeah, I think it began with space. And power of music is really about the way music behaves in space. And because of that, um, well, you're getting down to fundamentals, aren't you? You're getting down to basics of dealing with kind of, you know, sophisticated harmony or any of this kind of stuff. You're you're dealing with really basic stuff. And in a way, it takes you back to the cave. It takes you back to these amazing paintings that we're now aware of, of that were depictions of scenes, perhaps part real and part imaginary, in which the ability to represent a scene was aligned with reverberation because these scenes were created in caves. So that seemed to me a very fundamental aspect of what interested me. But of course, the problem is you're kind of trapped in a, in a commercial music-making world. And at the time, I was, I was working with a drummer, Paul Burwell, and 
you know, we were trying to find something new for ourselves. And everything we tried was failing because we were trying to make something that still had a connection to this commercial world. And what we were doing was, I suppose, too extreme, too unusual. And so then you start searching. How can I find a way out of this impasse? One of the ways I found, probably when I was 21 or so, was shamanism. I started reading about shamanism. Of course, the first book I read was the classic work, Mircea Eliad's book on shamanism. There are some very vivid descriptions in, in that book that he had collected from various ethnologists and explorers of shamanistic seances. And they describe various scenarios in which there was an exploration of the way sound could work in space to create an immersive feeling, a, a powerful affect that aligned with all the other aspects of the practice could somehow contribute to maybe a healing situation or, or something of that nature. And so there was the use of a drum and the use of metal objects hanging from a costume and the use of uh, ventriloquistic techniques and spatial illusions and all of these things were combined to make something that was very powerful and very immersive and could affect change. You know, how, how that affects change, well, the interpretation of that depends on your belief system. But let's say it created a, a very strong atmosphere. It was a powerful evocation and it, it took people somewhere. And I thought, yeah, this, this is what we're trying to do. You know, in our ignorance and our naivety, as, as very young people with very little experience, this is what we're trying to do. So it was a, I suppose it was a kind of guiding light in a way to begin researching these practices, the use of sound and the use of sound as something that was beyond just a kind of tool for making money <laughs> and becoming famous or something. It was, it was really a way to explore this whole territory. So, yeah, the, I think those experiences, the experience with my mother hearing the flutter echo and then the experience of discovering shamanism and discovering there was through that, that there were many other ways to think about using sound. They were both keys to this, well, this whole life's work that I've been engaged in since that time. I think that improvisation is the key, the core element of my practice. And when I say my practice, when I say my practice, I mean all of it. You know, if it's composing in the computer or it's writing or curating exhibitions or whatever, improvisation is the, is the source material. That's the kind of laboratory where things are worked out. And I've always thought of improvisation as imminence rather than transcendence. You know, some people think of improvisation as a way to get out of yourself. I think of improvisation as a kind of a dwelling. It's being within something and feeling you're within something. And it's working with materials and objects and seeing the way they behave and exploring the way sound behaves in a space and in relation to the other people who are witnesses in that space. So you're always in it. You're always in a kind of strange, semi-conscious 
very alert and aware state. But then you're in another state of mind as well. And that balance is enormously important. I think you could describe that as a kind of immersion. For that period of time, if things are going well, you're not really thinking in the way we think of as thinking, if that makes sense. In other words, you're not really consciously processing verbal thought. You're in relation to sound. You're in relation to space. You're in relation to other people. You're in relation to objects. And you're intensely listening. And so you're very much in the space in the moment. And sound is enveloping you. At that point, you're very conscious of the way that sound, the invasive quality of sound, I suppose, the way that sound enters us and exits us. You know, I'm a flute player, so I'm very conscious of this process that you're inhaling sound and you inhale air and you're exhaling sound if you play a flute. And if you're playing a flute, it's as if you're inhaling the sounds that are already happening in the space and you're exhaling them along with the flute sounds. And this is a kind of miraculous process, but it's also very ordinary somehow. You know, it's, it's, we don't have to be mystical about it. It's, it's just becoming in those moments of performance very much in tune with everything that's going on. And I think as what we might call professional in this work, okay, we develop these faculties maybe more than somebody else who's more visually oriented or, or whatever. But you develop these sensitivities. But even if you develop these sensitivities, for me personally, my experience is that you don't become fully one with them until you're in this imminent performance situation. At that point, you're fully immersed in the world of listening. And it's an extraordinary thing. And, and when it happens, and fortunately for me, as I've got to this age, it happens most performances. Years ago, you know, it, it was touch and go. With <laughs> and some performances could be disastrous because you couldn't get into that place. But maybe it's something to do with getting older. That you know that you're, you know, you have more experience, of course. But maybe in some ways you're more. I'm not sure what to say about this. I was going to say maybe you're calmer. I mean, certainly I feel calmer. But then you could feel panic for all sorts of good reasons as you get old. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that change that has happened in me means that I can access that immersive, super conscious state quite easily these days. And I'm, I'm very thankful to that. And then you can imagine how it is if you go back to these stories of shamanistic seances in Siberia or wherever it was in the 19th century or early 20th century that they would have a powerful effect, you know, and they would have the capacity to exert some kind of healing force. So I think through all these years from the first moment, you know, from being 20, 21 and starting to explore these things to now, that's a 50-year trajectory. So yes, you would hope to pick up quite a lot of experience from that time. But it's interesting what you say about you know, we're, we're born through immersion into sound. I started to think about this when I was writing my book, Sinister Resonance. One of the 
catalysts for writing that book was thinking about John Berger's book, Ways of Seeing. I'd read it when I was in my early 20s, and I went back to it. And uh, on the first page of the book, he says the first sensory experience that the newborn child has is visual. And I thought, that's, that's not right. <laughs> that's so wrong. Because, you know, obviously, during the period where we're in our mother's womb, we're experiencing this um, auditory, tactile sense, which is very powerful. And, and of course, now it's, it's well known that a newborn baby recognizes its mother's voice immediately because that's one of the main things it's been hearing for nine months or so. So I think for those of us who explore these areas in our practices, there's a very profound connection back to that state, you know, the pre-birth and the newborn state where sound is the primary experience or, or this very tactile sound is, is the, the primary experience for us. I, I read uh, Peter Sloterdijk's book, Bubbles, not so long ago, and he writes about this a lot. Uh, it's very, very interesting. And he talks about us being within a circle of hearing. So in a way, he suggests that it's the idea of a community of hearing is very much a part of our biology. It comes from this this experience of being in the womb and, and hearing this tremendous sound. I mean, it must be extraordinary to, to be in that situation and hearing this tremendous sound of the internal processes of the mother, all of the internal organs, everything working together, and then hearing external sounds, which are mysterious because they're of another world. I often think in terms of listening that we're constantly conscious of events which are of another world. So the, the sound events that we hear that are out of our sight and, and not part of us, you know, as I'm speaking now, I can hear a car coming up the road and suddenly out of the corner of my eye, I see it pass. But up until that point, it's just a sound from another world. You know, even a car's tires on, on the road probably have some connection to this internal sounding world before you're born. You know, this rushing, pulsing, roaring, white noise sound inside the womb. So... You know, for those of us who devote our lives to these activities, I think there's a, a, a very strong looping back and forth between this origin moment and then other origin moments. So I've identified three origin moments, which is before being born. Again, my mother taking me on this walk, which was a repeated walk. So I had a chance to notice once, but then notice again and again and again, this effect of reverberation and then the third thing, which was reading about how this type of phenomena can be uh, used actively for a specific purpose, in other words, in the practice of shamanism. So, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, I guess, what you're asking. <laughs> well, I think it is. I hope it is. <laughs> 100%, totally, beautifully said. I'm struck by the fact of being on a parallel journey. I mean, I think we're all on the same parallel journey, but in just a we're more conscious of it because that consciousness has produced the life's work that we've engaged in. My story begins with the fact that I actually recalled my first sounds that I heard. I was able to do a regression. It was in my 20s. After doing shamanistic singing, I built my first studio and did multi-track 
thick voices and and then extensive breathing exercises and healing ceremonies. And then I just uh, began to do sky songs where I'd follow the tempo of the clouds and play a gong. I was playing gong and chanting as part of my new music performance and uh, mm-hmm. going into dream states and re- relating the dream states. But I was able through a series of recollections to get back. I remembered particularly the absolutely accurate odor of the first time I smelled, which is after making it through the storm of birth, which is, if you can recall, a tremendous mashing that you get as you're coming out. And uh, (laughs) it's it's very scary. (laughs) I'd say that if you can survive birth, then you can do life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, do- the doctor that birthed me was this hairy guy who stank I mean he probably didn't smell bad at all but I'd never smelled anything mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and that mm-hmm. olfactory experience brought me back to the remembering of the mashing which brought me back to flashes of lights because every time I get these particular light flashes mm-hmm. brings me back to before that when I heard voices outside of myself I actually did a Hirschspiel for Westdeutsche Rundfunk in which I recreated that whole experience yeah. uh, with tubs of water and underwater microphones and voices <laughs> heard in the distance and so forth. But um, you're the first person I've interviewed and talked to in doing this book who's verbalized what we're talking about. It's uh, right. de- deeply oh, moving. That's that's great. <laughs> it's nice not to be alone. I mean, I'd say like, uh, yes, this, this, this is our dawn chorus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, a, this is something that could be talked about endlessly. But I mean, for me, that's the basic stuff of it. It's taken me a long time to get there, you know, to become aware of these three key points. I suppose because. You know, you you get mixed up in all sorts of things, professional stuff and trying to find your way. And, and then at a certain point, you think, oh, OK, I understand more of a structure to what I've been doing. You know, and I, I had an autobiography published in Japanese a couple of years ago, but then it was published in this country earlier this year in May on my 70th birthday. And I called it Flutter Echo because of this key experience. But also Flutter Echo to me was... It was a very poetic, I mean, it's a scientific term, but it it had a very poetic resonance because the echo was like the the reverberation of memory that was sounding from the beginning and like a repeat echo delay. But then this sense of fluttering and the way that these kind of memories cause a fluttering of the heart. I mean, this gave them nightmares in Japan of how to translate this title because it's a lot packed into two words. I felt I'd made sense of a lot of things that before had not really made sense to me. You know, I mean, why why do any of us embark on this path which is so precarious and so uncertain and so difficult in so many ways? You know, there has to be a good reason for it, but often we're not really aware of the reason we think Oh, I just couldn't help it. Or or some sort of ambition comes in. Or whatever it is. There are a lot of superficial reasons that we come up with to explain why it is we do this crazy stuff. But for me, you know, once once I made these connections with, with the importance of the pre-birth environment and the, the flutter I experience with my mother 
and then the shamanistic accounts. I thought, okay, that's yeah, that's kind of why I've <laughs> why I've taken this crazy route through life. And in the end, you you can say, well, it's been very rewarding. I didn't get rich, but that wasn't important anyway. And I didn't get famous. Best to avoid them if you can. But to be able to make a connection to the point before you were born, when you're getting old, I think is very satisfying. That's very beautiful. I can't think of uh, anything more meaningful than what you've just said. We're two parallel travelers in this particular meditation that's led us to the same place and from the same place. I guess in the end of the serenade uh, has a poem by Rothenberg which says, you know, you're no closer to the beginning or the end. You are just exactly where you are. Your conversation with me is as close to what I'm trying to do with this whole project as anything could be, because we, uh, we're on the same journey, and I think you could understand then what I'm trying to do, because uh, I found myself being drawn to recreate 3D sound and immerse people totally, and actually defined immersion as part of the patent that I'd just come back to the beginning. And then I saw that all it was was envelopes. First, we're in, we're in an aqueous envelope, which in a way is the like the sea that covered the earth. And then we go into the aerobic envelope and then somehow, somehow we're still we're still connected to our mothers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Or the yeah. big mother, whatever. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, well, that's great. I mean, it's, yeah, that, that all sounds very exciting. So that's fantastic. And uh, we'll, we'll be in touch. So be fantastic. in good health and uh, yes, take you it. Too, Thank yeah. you for today. Thanks Bye. a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. This is this Immerse, is immerse the, podcast the podcast and book. We are delighted, we are delighted to, have to, have to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, McCann and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. I'm Anaya Lockwood. Fall back into the sea.